0: You can grab your Bible and turn to Esther. Chapter 2 is where we will be together tonight as we continue a series that we began last week through this wonderful short story in the Old Testament. If you don't know how to get to Esther, an easy way to turn there is to probably open your Bible up to the middle book, which would probably land you in Psalms, and turn back two books to the left. Quite a few chapters, of course, through Job, and you'll eventually. Uh, get to Esther. What we're going to look at together tonight is the first 18 verses of chapter 2, leaving off the last few verses for next week's sermon that takes us through the end of chapter 3, Lord willing. And to get us going, though, I'm actually going to only read through verse 11 of chapter 2, even though we'll study through chapter 18. So uh, listen now as, as God does speak to us once again through His Word. And after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in city. S- Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known." And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you have breathed out your word for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And we do pray that it would correct us tonight, that it would comfort us, that it would convict us. That we might continue to grow in Christ likeness, and we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you know it was about thirty years ago that Disney scripted and sketched a movie that was about a tale as old as time. It was a story, wasn't it, of this beauty named Belle and her relationship with the beast. She had been taken captive into the beast's castle. And it was a tale as old as time that was really more better said as a fairy tale as old as time. Because against all expectations, according to normal customs, this beauty and the beast, they find romance, kindling, affection increasing. And it just so happened that in the nick of time, they fall in love. And what we come to in chapter 2 of Esther is another story about another beauty and another beast. It too is a tale as old as time, but it's quite different. For this is the tale of sin run rampant. This is a tale about a relationship not built upon affection and love, but lust and desires of the flesh about authority run rampant in the greatest kingdom of the world. So it's a tale as old as time not just because it's the story of sin run rampant, but perhaps it's a tale as old as time because it's the story of how God's providence continues to work out its good purpose and promise even when sin is running rampant. As a student, you're always gonna to want to be noticing along the way in our ongoing studies through Esther just the ways in which God's providence is so clearly working out every single detail for His people's protection, for His people's provision, that His covenant promises would come to pass in their life. And so the simple theme that we're looking at in these 18 verses today is the new queen. We said last week, chapter 1 was all about reasons why a new queen will rise, and we get to meet that new queen tonight. And in verses 1 through 4, we'll notice the beast, who is the king. We'll notice verses 5 through 11, the beauty herself. And then 12 through 18, their betrothal. The beast begins, verse 1. Notice, after these things, the author writes, Now, kids, do you remember what happened last week in chapter 1 of Esther? These things mentioned there in the first verse. Well, it was 187 days that King Ahasuerus had thrown this feast, this party in Susa, which was the capital city, it was this citadel fortress. And at the end of 187 days, through which all of the VIPs in the kingdom had come, even at the end, those final seven days, all of the ordinary citizens in and around Susa had come as well. And at the very end of this six-month-long feast, he had summoned his queen Vashti to appear before the people, that they might gawk and squawk at her beauty and her form and her figure. And you might remember that Queen Vashti flatly refused. And if you look back up to chapter two verse I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 12, the king was enraged at her disobedience and insubordination, taking counsel from his wise men. They decided that Vashti was going to need to be put away as queen. A new queen was going to rise. But evidently in the passage of time, verse one of chapter two tells us that the king was having regrets. The verse continues when the anger of King Ahashuas had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. The word there for Vashti, uh, sorry for "remembered," is one that communicates almost this nostalgic affection for something in the past that. He's telling us, the author is, that the king's decision made in his rage is one that he's come to regret. And students, it's often true, isn't it? That whenever you're making a decision of such consequence, in the midst of such heated emotion, rarely will the decision actually be wise. Rarely will the decision actually be one that you will be proud of in months, perhaps even years to come. He has regrets, but he soon finds out that he can't do anything about it. It was a law of the Medes and the Persians. It couldn't be revoked. She couldn't become queen once again. So he takes counsel. You'll notice verse 2 through 4. The young's men recommend a new plan for a new queen. Saying, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Skipping down the end of verse 3 through 4. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of. Of Vashti. And it almost seems as though it's something of an ancient equivalent to a bachelor contest. Here is King Ahasuerus and beautiful women will parade themselves in front of him, one after the next. And which one is going to win his affection? Which one is going to win his hand? There's only three simple qualifications necessary to be a part of this harem. You have to be young which is probably something like the age of 14 to 18 at the time. It's not exactly clear, but young. Have to be a virgin, number two. And number three, stunning in form and figure. Unsurprisingly, the king says, this is a pleasurable plan. Verse four at the end mentions this, please, the king, and he did so. And you want to pay attention to that phrase, this pleased the king, because it punctuates the story along the way in Esther, showing us that King Ahasuerus seems to be a man that's always deciding based upon momentary pleasures and minute whims, no matter what the long-term consequences may be. And you need to realize that as full of offense as it may be to a modern mind, as the text continues and these women are gathered into the harem, it is actually quite different, isn't it? than the bachelor contest, of which perhaps you're familiar. Because these women are never going to leave the king's palace. If they lose this contest, they're not going to be summoned and sent back home. They're going to stay in the palace for the rest of their life, ready to serve the king at his beck and call and desire. But again, it may sound stunning and striking to some of you, it's probably true to say that many, if not most, of these young women would have been excited about the prospect of entering into this harem. It would have provided a lifelong comfort and luxury and stability. That sure, you may not become the queen, you might, but nevertheless, even if you're not, you're promised a life of stability and provision in the king's palace. That's why one scholar says it would have been akin to winning a lottery ticket at the time for most of these young women. Women summoned into the beast's palace. Well, verse 5 through 11 show us the beauty, don't they? Meanwhile, in the city of Susa, there's this man named Mordecai. Look at verse 5 through 6. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. You want to pay attention to his lineage from Benjamin for subsequent interactions with this man named Haman. But kids, listen to verse 6 and. Notice the phrase repeated three times. Mordecai had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. You know, it's three times the text is telling us, like wham, bam, slam. He was carried away. More literally, he was exiled. It's amplifying and amplifying for us the exilic estate of Mordecai, that in those decades before, he, along with his family, surely, had been exiled from the promised land in God's covenant curses falling upon his people. And kids, do you know what it means to be in exile? It simply means to live in a place that's not your home. And here he was in Susa, a place that's not his home, but he's not alone. As you'll see in verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the end of verse 7 says that he had adopted her. Clearly they're cousins, probably separated by many years. He was functioning in many ways as Esther's stepfather, directing her steps, giving her counsel and prudential wisdom along the way. And what we're meant to notice right from the outset, in the middle of verse 7, is Esther's stunning Beauty. You see, she was a young woman who had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Not surprisingly, then, you'll see in verse 8, she's swept up into this harem being collected for the king and his future queen to be decided. And notice Esther's immediate involvement, verse 9, the young woman pleased. Haggai, who was in charge of the women, won his favor. He quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young men or women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And you want to ask a question here of Esther, which has dominated discussion, frankly, in almost all texts ever since regarding this book. Is Esther willing or unwilling in the events that are about to unfold? What we can say certainly, by virtue of the immediate context, is that God is clearly working. That he is orchestrating everything down to its smallest detail to bring his promise to pass in his covenant people's life. We can also say clearly, according to verse 9, that Esther is active. In seeking Haggai's favor. The words that are used there are ones that are not passive. They're active. That she's actively trying to seek and find a better place in the king's harem. So what do you make of Esther? Maybe a way to ask that question is, is Esther virtuous? Or is she disastrous in this passage? And the important thing to recognize is all throughout the story, the narrator, the author, never comments on Esther's actions one way or another. Like a good historian, it just simply states the details and doesn't seek to underscore or evaluate potential motives. Maybe the best way, I think, to understand Esther in this passage is that she's something of a torn figure between two worlds. Because if you glance back up to verse 7, We're clearly told that she has two names which underscore her two identities. She has the Jewish name of Hadassah. So she is a Jew, belonging to God's covenant people, subject to its demands and reminded often of its promises, but not just the identity of Hadassah, but also that of Esther, which is a Persian name, which is seemingly telling us that she is living between two worlds seemingly having two different identities, which along the way in this story, you're going to see something of that difficulty appear when certain decisions strike her and come her way, which is maybe why even verse 10 tells us Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it her own. So as one scholar says, on the one hand, being true to her Jewish roots would certainly mean Hadassah avoiding at all costs becoming a pagan king's concubine, But on the other hand, living in the cultural climate of the Persians would mean seeing the luxury of the Persian court as something desirable. Esther, it seems, is really caught between two worlds. And I think that seems to be true in the course of this story, and I dare say it's true of many of you, that you can be caught between two worlds. That if you belong to Jesus Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, but you live in kingdom of the earth, and so often you're caught between choices, opportunities, chances, and obligations. You know, students, if you haven't felt that before, certainly in years to come you will. Should the Lord tarry, there's going to be times in which you're confronted with an opportunity, a chance. and The choice might be as simple as to be faithful to the Lord, to follow the way of sin, perhaps it's at school, perhaps it's with a relationship, perhaps it's in your workplace. We have the beauty who's now in the harem. And we want to see in verses 12 through 18, the betrothal. So what's happening along the way? Well, you'll notice in verse 12 that we're told a year passes. All of these ladies in the harem, they undergo months and months and months of beauty treatments to ready to meet the king. And what happens in the meeting? Look at verse 14. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her. And she was summoned by name. So it does sound as crass as it might appear. It was a night of sexual activity. Wondering if you've delighted the king enough for him to want to see you again delighting the king enough for him to want to give you his royal crown. And if you just turn the page or glance a few verses down, you'll see what happens with Esther on her night, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, and the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And there's two things that you need to see about this pivotal text. Actually, three things. One of which is the sudden reversal. You're going to find throughout the book is that you get these sudden reversals dominating the story. You have this sudden reversal in chapter 1 with Vashti at the height of power as a woman in the land, and she suddenly falls. And here's a sudden reversal in and of itself, isn't it? This unknown Jewish girl in the citadel of Susa, she rises to power and prominence. But do notice, secondly, the time that's mentioned in verse 16. You see, all of this took place in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. That means four years has passed between Vashti's fall and Esther's rise. Four years It doesn't have too much comment in sacred scripture. Four years where it doesn't seem like anything terribly important of note has come to pass. And maybe you know in your own life that four years can pass, and maybe it doesn't seem as though anything terribly important has come to pass. Nothing that you would actually write down in a book to give to future generations. But as this story is going to tell, God is always working, isn't he? Even though there's years when there's nothing major that comes to pass. He's always working behind every detail, behind every situation, behind every event to bring about His promises, His purposes in your own life. But you do not only see the time in verse 16, but also the trouble that many people feel about verse 16 and 17. It perhaps is the greatest conundrum that's perplexed scholars throughout the years. What are we to make of Esther's actions or lack thereof in this moment as heroine of the story. And if you read through the pages that are out there to be seen and to be discovered, you would find no small of opinions on the matter saying Esther's actions were totally understandable. Esther's actions were totally objectionable. Given the exigencies of the time, what else could she have done? But Again, you want to recognize that the text doesn't tell us anything about her motives doesn't evaluate anything about the decision, even though it's doing so in guarded and relatively subtle language, which is honorable for a historian. The simple reality is she went in and slept with the king, and she is now queen. A new queen has risen in the land, and her name is Esther. Throughout the years of serving in various churches, it's frequent enough that church members will uh, come up to me and suggest that we sing a certain song that's meant something special to them or perhaps has come to mind as one that the congregation should learn and sometimes those suggestions are good ones other times the recommendations are not the best and there was one year many years ago that a church member had come to me wanting to sing this song about God building his kingdom on earth, and it had this repeated refrain of, of, build your kingdom here. And I had to always have that not fun conversation about why we're not going to sing that song, because I didn't think it was the best one for us to sing, and not least of which is that the lyrics in that song were pretty much ones about mighty, magnificent displays of power as the ordinary way that God builds His kingdom on earth. When it seems as though much more truthfulness resides in the fact that it's just gradually Incrementally, God builds his kingdom on earth, as Jesus says, kind of like a mustard seed. Slowly but surely, growing into a full tree. And what you're going to see along the way in Esther, and even we see it again tonight, is the ways in which God builds his kingdom in the world. The way in which God advances his purposes in the world. Because this simple, very brief story about a new queen rising named Esther... Tells us at least two things about how God advances his purpose. And I want to meditate on these as we begin to close. First, God advances his purposes through the greatest of his enemies. To the greatest of his enemies. But we spoke about this with more length last week. King Ahasuerus was the king of the world, it would have seemed at the time. He was very much a god in the city of Susa. Here's a man who had nothing to do with the true Creator and Lord over all mankind. Here was one that opposed God, Yahweh, at every turn, wanting to go about His own devices and satisfy His own desires. But don't you see how, even through the greatest of His enemies, this political power of unusual might in the world, God is advancing, organizing, orchestrating, governing, preserving everything to make sure his promise comes to pass. And why that must be an encouragement to some of you is you can look at on the world today and you can see governments, you can see leaders, you can see rulers. That seem to have an incredible amount of might in the world. Might they are liberally using to squash the church, to quiet devotion to God. It appears as though they are winning in their schemes of evil. That what you need to know from Esther is that God is always advancing His purposes, even over His greatest of enemies. That their designs, their schemes, always and only ultimately lead to their downfall and the preservation and prosperity of God's people. But it's not just that God advances His purposes through the greatest of His enemies. The text is also telling us that God is advancing His purposes through the weakest of His servants the weakest of his servants. Certainly, if it's right for us to take Esther as this torn individual, she just joins, doesn't she, a long list of heroines and heroes in Scripture that were not perfect, frankly, often befuddling in the way in which they went about the Lord's business. what good news that is, is that God even uses the weakest of his servants to advance his plan. No one would have thought that this young Jewish girl in the city of Susa would rise to power, yet she does. No one would have thought about so many other characters in Scripture that rise to prominence, yet they do. Which points us, doesn't it, this story to the true story of the truth of Jesus Christ. One who didn't have any form or figure that anyone would notice. Weakness marked his life. Complete ordinariness was his lot. And yet he, what? Becomes the one through whom God uses to advance his purpose and promise in the world. So I even 1 Corinthians chapter 1 can tell us that God has used Jesus Christ through the folly of the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. To use the weak, to shame the strong. The foolish, to shame the wise. And he's always bringing about his purposes. Even through his great enemies, he's always bringing about his purposes. Even through his weak servants that he might protect and provide for his people. And sometimes the most surprising of ways. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would comfort us in your kind providence. That can often confuse us and lead us to ask questions when we don't understand exactly why you are doing what you are doing, why you are allowing what you are allowing. Lord, comfort us in your power towards us, the certainty of your promise within us the yes and amen that belong to everyone who is in Christ Jesus for every plan that you have purposed for them. We pray that you would grow us in our trust for you. You would grow us in our holiness before you as we want, even in the midst of our weakness, to find you using us for the advance of your kingdom. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.